Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello to all you out there in OD land. How's the year treating you so far? Have you made it out of hibernation yet? This year's SECO meeting is now in the rear view, and I think most of us are experiencing daylight saving time, so things are trending toward a warmer, brighter place at least. Well, regardless of weather or the season, one thing remains constant, and that's a need for eye care. By sharing selected articles from the latest issue of Modern Optometry, we hope you can take away helpful tips and pearls that allow you to enhance the eye care you provide. In this episode, we have two great articles for your listening pleasure, and we're going to dive right in. When is dry eye more than just dry eye? Helen Kendra Lee, an optometrist at Nevada Eye Plastic Surgery in Reno, Nevada, and Mahania Madan, an optometrist at Vancouver Eye Doctor in Vancouver, Canada, discuss the side of dry eye not often touched upon. Let's find out about the role of eyelid malposition in ocular surface disease and how to address it. In recent years, the role that eyelids play in dry eye disease has drawn increasing attention. We all know that addressing lid disease is critical in managing inflammation and reducing the vicious cycle of dry eye disease. However, eyelids also play a key role in the complex tear dynamics needed to maintain a stable tear film, prevent ocular surface desiccation, and preserve healthy tear mechanisms with each blink. An eyelid malposition, as the name suggests, occurs when the eyelid shifts to an abnormal anatomical position. Blackie and his colleagues found that more than 60% of symptomatic patients with dry eye had compromised lid closure due to eyelid malposition. Conversely, on the other hand, 80% of asymptomatic patients had healthy functioning eyelids that demonstrated good lid seal. If you're treating a patient's ocular surface, but not addressing the role that eyelids play in their function to protect the eye, you're fighting an uphill battle by treating the inflammation without treating its cause. For this reason, managing eyelid malposition is imperative in successfully treating dry eye disease. Regardless of the type of eyelid malposition, the hallmark symptoms may present similarly as foreign body sensation, excessive tearing, redness, and ocular irritation. However, there are differences in signs and symptoms that are important to note. For example, patients with ectropion often present with inferior corneal or conjunctival staining and keratinization of the palpebral conjunctiva due to exposure and chronic inflammation. Patients with entropion report foreign body sensation or pain, especially when reading or looking down, mucus discharge, crusting around the eyelids, and inferior keratoconjunctivitis. In floppy eyelid syndrome, one may see periodic episodes of papillary conjunctivitis and hyperemia, especially upon wakening. Although symptoms play an important role in identifying eyelid malpositions, a careful objective examination of the eyelids is critical in determining the malposition and recommending the appropriate treatment. Some important tests to consider are as follows. Begin the external exam by looking at the position of the lower eyelids for any evidence of ectropion, entropion, or scleral show. 
Mild atropion can be seen as subtle eversion of the lower eyelid margin outwards. Moderate atropion involves a step off of the eyelid from the globe, and severe atropion can be seen as frank eversion of the tarsus eyelid. Entropion causes a lower eyelid to roll inwards. If entropion is not seen, but suspected, one may induce entropion by having the patient forcefully squeeze their eye closed while the clinician holds the upper eyelid open. Next, with the patient's head perpendicular to the floor, measure the lower or upper eyelid margin relative to the inferior or superior limbus in millimeters respectively. When the eyelids are retracted, the upper eyelid may not meet the lower eyelids, resulting in ophthalmos. Any amount of scleral show can predispose patients to dry eye disease. Patients with prominent globes are particularly at risk for age-related eyelid retraction, as this creates an anatomical disadvantage, allowing gravity to pull the lower eyelid down further, like a belt that falls below a large belly. Another important test to consider is to check for lid laxity or tone of the lower eyelids by performing the eyelid snapback test. This is where the lower eyelid is pulled inferiorly away from the globe and then released to allow it to return. In cases of poor lid laxity, the lid will not recover quickly to a normal anatomical position and may require a blink to return to baseline. Eyelid laxity can lead to eyelid closure issues, including incomplete blink and lygophthalmos. Checking for lygophthalmos should be part of every dry eye evaluation. Have the patient lean their head back in the exam chair and close their eyes gently while you shine a transilluminator where the lid margins meet. Any amount of opening should be noted as lygophthalmos in millimeters. Alternatively, a clinician can perform the Corb Blackie Lid Light Test by darkening the room and placing the transilluminator on the closed upper eyelid then watching for any light escaping from the palpebral fissure. Light escaping indicates incomplete or inadequate lid seal. The amount of visible light can be quantified on a scale of zero to three. Zero being no light, one, minimal light, two, moderate light, and three, severe light. Before placing the patient behind the slit lamp, Check the floppiness of the eyelid by pulling the upper eyelid up and out temporally to see how far the eyelid can be displaced. Floppy eyelid syndrome is an underdiagnosed eyelid malposition that presents with hyperlaxity of the upper and lower eyelids. These eyelids tend to evert easily, putting the cornea and conjunctiva at risk for making direct contact with the patient's pillow while sleeping, especially if they tend to sleep on their stomach or sides. Floppy eyelid syndrome can be associated with ocular and systemic diseases, notably keratoconus and obstructive sleep apnea. Most eyelid malpositions are caused by involutional changes, where the structures of the eyelid become loose or lax with aging, resulting in medial displacement of the lateral canthus and loosening of the eyelid anchoring mechanism. Proper canthal anchoring pulls the eyelids tight and is critical in producing a forceful blink which in turn acts to facilitate the pumping mechanism that washes tears across the eye and down the cannuliculus. With these involutional changes, one may see signs of incomplete blink or lygophthalmos and symptoms of significant tearing in addition to dry eye. Eyelid malposition can also be due to paralytic causes such as Bell's palsy or trauma to the facial nerve. 
Weakness or paralysis of the facial nerve results in poor orbicularis function and the inability to close the eyelid. Cosmetic surgery such as upper and lower lid blepharoplasty or ptosis repair can also cause eyelid malposition. Too much skin removed from the upper or lower lids during surgery or ptosis overcorrection can lead to ligophthalmos. Additionally, the orbicularis muscle can be damaged or weakened by surgery and lead to poor lid closure. Lastly, eyelid retraction can be seen in thyroid eye disease, where inflammation and scarring of the periorbital tissue can cause proptosis and eyelid retraction, again leading to weakened lid closure and ligophthalmos. Careful history and evaluation of the eyelids are critical in determining the cause and type of malposition and recommending the appropriate treatment. Now, not all eyelid malpositions require surgical treatment, and optometrists certainly play a very critical role in managing these patients by optimizing their dry eye disease. Remember that eyelid malposition is often only one of the factors contributing to dry eye. A thorough case history along with a comprehensive anterior segment exam is imperative in identifying other factors. Managing as many of those contributing factors as possible in a tailored approach will help bring much needed relief to your patients. If the eyelid malposition is relatively mild, consider starting off by having the patient use artificial tears during the day, along with eye ointments at night to help provide additional moisture while sleeping. Intensive moisturization of the eyelids, skin, and face can be very helpful to minimize mild ectropions and leg ophthalmos if the patient has dry, tight periocular skin. This can be achieved by applying a high-quality moisturizer or bland eye ointment to the lower lid skin cheeks at least twice a day. Non-invasive in-office treatments with radiofrequency can also be helpful in patients with mild lid laxity to improve eyelid apposition. Radiofrequency uses high-frequency electrical currents to stimulate fibroblasts and collagen production, which results in skin tightening. Often patients will require one treatment for every decade of life to see results. Now, if the patient has frank ectropion, tightly taping the lower lids down to their cheek can give them some temporary relief until surgery is needed. Moisture chamber goggles such as iSeal 4.0 hydrating sleep mask or taping the eyelids closed can prevent unintended exposure while sleeping. Patients with mild to moderate floppy lids should also be instructed to avoid sleeping on their sides or stomach to minimize the risk of their ocular surface making contact with their pillow. For these patients, the clinician should also consider a referral to their primary care doctor for sleep apnea evaluation, especially if they have symptoms of sleep apnea. These patients may snore loudly, be chronically tired during the day, wake up gasping for air, or their partner may state that they stop breathing during sleep. Now, if patients have upper eyelid paralysis and there's potential for improvement in function, external lid weights, for example, blink ease external lid weights can be used to help eyelid closure. These uh, adhesive lid weights use gravity to weigh down the upper eyelid and create a more natural, complete blink and closure. Punctal plugs also can be a key player in patients with leg ophthalmos by increasing tear volume and helping to reduce dependency on artificial tears while preserving the patient's natural tear film. 
Patients should also be carefully examined for blepharitis and meibomian gland dysfunction. The presence of MGD leads to poor quality and quantity of meibom production, causing tear film instability. Literature suggests that as many as 86% of patients with dry eye have MGD, and that more than 58% of these patients have demodex blepharitis. At-home lid hygiene in combination with in-office treatments with microblepharoexfoliation, thermal pulsation, or intense pulse light therapy should be used to help manage these conditions. Intense pulse light therapy, or IPL, combined with meibomian gland expression, has been found to treat MGD safely and effectively and improve meibomian gland structure and function over time. In addition, one may consider the use of immunomodulators to help manage ocular surface inflammation. If there is significant corneal staining or non-resolving epithelial defects, we can also turn to autologous serum and platelet-rich plasma to help heal the ocular surface. Another major cause of dry eye disease is the use of systemic medications such as oral contraceptives, antidepressants, antihistamines, and antihypertensive medications. Although we may not be able to modify a patient's drug therapies, we can manage expectations and guide our dry eye treatment and plan accordingly. Now, if a patient's eyelid condition is relatively mild and their dry eye has been optimized with non-surgical treatments, but they still continue to have notable symptoms, a referral to an oculoplastic would be appropriate. In cases where the patient has ectropion or any degree of entropion, earlier surgical intervention is recommended to avoid having to undergo more extensive surgery. However, just as you would manage dry eye disease prior to sending the patient for refractive consult, the same is true in this case. Although surgical techniques vary between surgeons, some common surgical treatments will be discussed. Ectropion and entropion often require horizontal eyelid tightening to eliminate laxity, as this is a primary cause of the eyelid malposition. In cases of severe ectropion, where there is a shortage of skin, a full thickness skin graft may need to be placed in the eyelid. Lower eyelid retraction repair may involve placement of a spacer graft directly into the eyelid to help build up or scaffold the lower eyelid upwards into a more normal position. In instances where a permanent facial palsy prevents the patient from blinking or completely closing the eye, and when there is no potential for improvement, a gold or platinum weight may be surgically implanted into the upper eyelid to augment the effect of gravity and help the upper eyelid close. In cases of severe exposure keratopathy or a neurotrophic cornea, a temporary or permanent tarsorophy may be placed to surgically fuse the upper and lower eyelids together, giving the cornea a chance to heal. Floppy eyelid repair often requires excising a wedge of redundant or excess eyelid tissue and then suturing the two edges together, effectively tightening the eyelid and creating improved apposition of the lid to the globe. When ophthalmos and eyelid retraction is caused by thyroid eye disease, treatments using oral or intravenous steroids or tepatumumab infusions may be helpful. In severe cases of exposure due to proptosis, an orbital decompression may be required. Orbital decompression 
fractures the bones of the orbit in a controlled manner to expand the orbital volume, allowing the globe to fall back into the orbit and reducing the proptosis and exposure of the eye. It's essential that the clinician recognize any eyelid malposition and its contribution to dry eye and ocular symptoms and signs. For this reason, assessment of eyelid position should be part of every dry eye consultation. Partnering with an oculoplastic surgeon to treat eyelid conditions is critical to the success of any comprehensive dry eye treatment plan. Was abnormal anatomic eyelid position already on your radar when evaluating patients with suspected dry eye disease? Or have you perhaps learned something new here? Let's move on to our next and last article of the episode. But before we do, let's take a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. All right, for our last article of the episode, Olivia Berger, a resident at the University of California Berkeley School of Optometry, reads the article she co-wrote with Kuniyoshi Kanai, an assistant clinical professor also at the University of California Berkeley School of Optometry, on suggested diagnostic steps and imaging pearls for making a definitive diagnosis between papilledema or pseudopapilledema. Take a listen. Papilledema is arguably one of the most concerning findings to encounter during a routine ocular examination. Even if the patient is not experiencing symptoms, intervention may be necessary. Differentiating true papilledema from pseudopapilledema may seem like an intimidating task, but by discussing the case of a patient with asymptomatic bilateral disc edema, we will reveal important clinical pearls for tackling these tricky cases. A 22-year-old female presented for routine examination at the University Eye Clinic. Her ocular and systemic histories were unremarkable. Her VA was correctable to 2020 OU. She passed a screening visual field test and her IOP was 18 millimeters of mercury in the right eye and 19 millimeters of mercury in the left eye. On fundus examination, her optic discs showed bilateral elevation, prompting concern for optic disc edema. Given the lack of vision reduction, visual field loss noted on the screening tests, and subjective changes in vision, papilledema or pseudopapilledema were particularly suspected. When faced with a possible diagnosis of papilledema, consider these key steps. Be sure to take a case history to thoroughly cover these areas. Although papilledema is often caused by idiopathic intracranial hypertension, IIH, it may also be the result of a brain mass, so it is important to ask the patient open-ended questions, such as, have you noticed any recent changes with yourself? The Idiopathic Intracranial Hypertension Treatment Trial, IIHTT, is the largest prospective study of IIH. The most common symptom that participants in the trial presented with were headache, transient vision loss, back pain, pulsatile tinnitus, and dizziness. In the trial, 75% of participants presented to the study site with a distinct pattern of visual field defects. They had either isolated or a combination of enlarged blind spot and localized nerve fiber layer defects, such as a nasal step and arcuate defects. Only 12% of patients presented with clear visual fields. 
However, our impression is that clear visual fields are common with mild papilledema. It is worthwhile to note that about half of the patients enrolled in the IIHTT study presented with moderate to severe papilledema, whereas optometrists more often see mild papilledema. Therefore, a clear visual field should not exclude the possibility of papilledema. Our patient's visual field did not show any defects. Another history component is the use of certain high-risk medications. Many medications have been linked to IIH, including oral contraceptives, estrogen, lithium, vitamin A derivatives, medications in the tetracycline family, and others. It is also critical to consider your patient's demographics to roll IIH in or out. Demographics in the IIHTT showed that patients were primarily female, an average age of 29 years old, and had a mean elevated body mass index, BMI, of 39.9 kilograms per millimeter squared. Our patient was asymptomatic for headache, nausea, recent medication changes, diplopia, back pain, tinnitus, and tingling extremities. Her BMI was 29.2 kilograms per millimeter squared, which lies at the high end of the overweight range, and she reported a recent weight gain of about 15 pounds over the past year. Diagnosing papilledema versus pseudopapilledema can be challenging when a comprehensive examination is normal, apart from the optic nerve appearance, as in the case with our patient. However, additional testing can help to differentiate true papilledema. B-scan ophthalmic ultrasonography has been considered the gold standard for detecting disc drusen. The hyperreflective lesion of drusen becomes apparent in the B-scan image, even if it is buried deep in the disc, which is indicative of optic disc drusen and pseudopapilledema. Despite its powerful diagnostic ability with drusen, its limited application to other conditions makes it less prioritized in private practice optometric offices, so not many are equipped with B-scan ultrasonography. Instead, they are often fitted with threshold visual field analyzers and spectral domain OCT machines. Despite its robust capability, spectral domain OCT alone is not diagnostic in differentiating papilledema from pseudopapilledema. The line skin does not reach deep enough to expose the buried distrusion. Retinal nerve fiber layer, RNFL, analysis, however, can help judge the possibility of papilledema. With the stagnation of axonal flow due to congestion, true papilledema is likely to present with RNFL values that exceed the normative database which was the case for our patient. Careful analysis of the optic nerve is critical. Spontaneous venous pulsation, SVP, is a palpitation in the central retinal vein that pulsates with the heartbeat. It occurs when there is a delicate balance between intracranial pressure and IOP, but when intracranial pressure far exceeds IOP, SVP diminishes. The presence of SVP is a strong indication of normal intracranial pressure, which our patient did not possess. In addition to SVP, optometrists should pay attention to several key features of the optic nerve. Obscuration of the disc margin commonly occurs with both papilledema and pseudopapilledema. Also look at the color tone of the optic disc, as papilledema often presents with a hyperemic tone. The disc edema can also displace the retina, leading to concentric or horizontal retinal folds known as patent lines. Careful observation of our patient's optic disc showed several characteristic findings of papilledema. Although threshold visual fields were clear, our patient's demographics, RNFL on OCT, and the detailed analysis of the disc led to the diagnosis of papilledema. She was promptly referred to neurology for further testing. 
MRI was performed to rule out a space-occupying lesion, and magnetic resonance venography was performed to rule out cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which is correlated with intracranial hypertension and is potentially life-threatening. Magnetic resonance venography should be performed in all cases of suspected papilledema. Our patient's imaging was negative, and she refused a confirmatory lumbar puncture despite recommendations. Nevertheless, a diagnosis of presumed IIH was given. She was placed on acetazolamide 1,000 mg daily with gradual recovery over a few months. Advances in diagnostic technology that can distinguish papilledema are promising. The latest generation of OCT, including swept source OCT and enhanced step imaging OCT, are often still cost prohibitive. However, they bring more accurate diagnostic capabilities. Chang et al. at the University of California, Los Angeles neuro-ophthalmology team showed a comparable diagnostic accuracy of EDI-OCT versus B-scan ultrasonography in distinguishing between papilledema and pseudopapilledema. The Optic Disc Drusen Studies Consortium, formed by a group of American neuro-ophthalmologists, recommends the use of EDI-OCT to look for particular signs of optic disdrusen, such as hyperreflective margin and the presence of hypo-reflective core. OCT angiography, OCTA, can potentially assist in diagnosis. Gandhi et al. reported loss of peripapillary microvasculature, evidence on OCTA. However, our impression of the usefulness of OCTA is mixed. Segmentation error appears to be common due to significant elevation of nerve tissue, which makes its application a bit tricky. It can be intimidating to navigate a case of bilateral optic disc edema in the setting of an asymptomatic patient during routine primary care examination. In distinguishing papilledema from pseudopapilledema, case history, assessment of clinical data, and analysis of the optic nerves are key. Performing ancillary tests for additional guidance and keen observation of the optic nerve is critical in managing these cases. Highly suspicious cases require prompt imaging. Depending on logistical hurdles, such as scheduling, emergency room referral may be necessary to rule out intracranial lesions. Even in less suspicious cases, always err on the side of caution and make any necessary consultations. Well, hopefully you were able to take something away from this episode's articles. As far as eyelid malposition and dry eye, just remember that 60% of symptomatic patients with dry eye have compromised lid closure due to eyelid malposition. And as far as differentiating between papilledema or pseudopapilledema, when in doubt, always err on the side of caution and send patients for consultation or referral as necessary. That concludes this month's episode of The Mod Pod. Join us again next month, but while you wait, be sure to visit iwire.news to stay current on all the latest headlines in eye care, or check out the latest episodes of some of our other offerings on itube.net. Want more dry eye content? Listen to To The Point, a podcast for optometrists building their dry eye practices. We have plenty to keep you busy until the next episode of The Mod Pod. Until next time, be well.